1: This
2: program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre recorded.
1: This is Women to Watch. To
3: rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your
1: dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world.
4: It is for those frightened children who want peace, it is for those voiceless children who want change
1: be inspired by women from across the globe true philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams what i know to be
4: true is that women were always meant to lead and by shining a light on those doing it well today my hope is that more women will be inspired to use their own voice
1: Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women To Watch, Sue Rocco.
4: Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to another week of Women To Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and it's great to be here with all of you. Uh, It's been quite a week. Um, My very special guest who's joining me this evening, uh, coming up in just a moment, is Dr. Nisa Goldberg. And Dr. Goldberg is the medical director of NYU Women's Heart Program. She is senior advisor for women's health strategy for NYU. Uh, Langone, am I pronouncing that right? Langone Health? Langone. Langone Health, the founder and former medical director of the Joan Tisch Center for Women's Health and clinical associate professor at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Um, We are so lucky to have the opportunity to hear from Nisa tonight. If you're interested in learning more about the show and how you can become a member of our watch team, feel free to email laura at womentowatch.net. And be sure to visit our website, womentowatch.net, to to sign up for our newsletter and download the podcast so you never miss a show. Uh, So now I'm honored and thrilled again to have with us this evening Dr. Nisa Goldberg. Nisa, thanks so much for joining me. Um, It's so exciting to be with you here tonight. And I can imagine how busy you must be these days. Not only um, do you carry multiple titles and roles, um, but I just think that the times that we're living in in general are probably keeping you very, very extra busy.
5: Well, it, it is keeping us extra busy, um, both because we're trying to encourage the p- People to get to take care of their overall health. You know, everyone is caught up in the COVID nineteen pandemic, and we're all affected by it. And our families are affected by COVID uh, nineteen, but they're doing their their worries about going to seek out medical care for other conditions like follow-up care for high blood pressure or diabetes or um get, getting to the cardiologist because you may have some heart symptoms people are delaying those visits and now i see a lot of our patients coming back um and scheduling an appointment so we're very busy in the in the
4: office Right, and that's a, and that's a good thing that they're feeling comfortable enough to come back, and it's really important. Um, Nisa, I wanted to, uh, to share with our listeners where your own interest in cardiology came from, and and you shared with me that it began when your dad developed heart disease when he was very young. First of all, how old were you at that time?
5: Well, my when my father first. Developed his symptoms of heart disease. I was in, um, I was uh, in college when he first developed his symptoms. So he was in his late forties, and he develops um, angina, which is chest pressure or tightness due to clogged arteries to the heart. And he was evaluated and placed on medicine. And then um, several years later, while I was a resident in medicine at St. Luke's Hospital in New York City, I got a call that my father was taken to the hospital because he had fainted. And as part of the evaluation, he had a repeat angiogram, and he, his doctor had recommended coronary artery bypass surgery, and he was 53 at that time.
4: Yeah, that is and young very young. Yeah, and probably so out
5: of the young. blue. Right. Well, we already knew he had coronary artery disease at like the age of forty seven. But um but he his symptoms worsened to the point that he had to be reevaluated. And then the surgery was recommended. So it was, it was kind of shocking because I was, I remember I was on my ICU rotation and I was taking very, care of very sick patients and some of them had had heart disease and heart surgery and, and, and during that year I also rotated during, through the coronary care unit and had to, t- had to discuss coronary artery bypass surgery with many of the patients. Um, and so now it was part of my own family. And it, you know, the really nice thing was, is when my, uh, my, the resident who was in charge of our team found out that um, my father was having surgery, they actually, which is unheard of in residency, gave me a day off to go be with my mother um, when my father went for surgery.
4: Wow. Tell me, um, Nisa, I want to go back to your younger years um, prior to school and, Tell me what, you know, becoming a doctor, growing up and becoming a doctor and the level that you are, um, tell me where that confidence came from in you as a young girl to pursue this profession. Oh, I think ever since
5: I was a young girl, my parents always emphasized education to be a very important part of my life and were always very supportive of uh, of me and you know I could remember my father owned a small business in Brooklyn he owns a luncheonette and at three o'clock my father would pick me up from elementary school and bring me back to his luncheonette and I would sit in the back and do my homework and my mother would come by and check up on me um, that my homework was being done and so. My, I I want to also point out that it was an unusual time because my mother actually worked with my father, um, and so both of my parents worked.
4: Mm -hmm. I love you. Actually, shared a wonderful picture of yourself as a young girl. I'm guessing that was you sitting in the luncheonette. Yes, at the booth. Oh, I love that! I love that picture so much. You looked very relaxed there.
5: Yeah, yeah. My my, we had that at home, and it, it was just really funny because um, I'm wearing these T strap shoes, and I last um, I guess last fall or you know last year before the pandemic, I actually bought a very similar pair of shoes. Oh, <laughs> and my husband oh. said,
4: "Wait, those are the shoes in the picture." It was very funny. <laughs> I just love you. Your dress matched the booth. It was all very you know. Um... It was perfect. It was just perfect. Um, Thank you.
5: So so that was a and you know, I think that was a great introduction for me to be in a social situation with other people. I would meet the customers and um and, and you know, it was an interaction and you know, I learned what it
4: is to be in a service oriented business, which healthcare is. Yes. Do you think that if your father had not had those heart issues that you still would have ended up as a cardiologist?
5: Um, you know, I think I probably would have, but I, I, I'm, I, I think of have my father having it and my interest to investigate it early on, um, you know, even before I went to medical school and read about it. Um, It it just became a passion for me. Mm -hmm. But I actually volunteered at a hospital um, in Brooklyn, New York, where I grew up. And the doctor I volunteered with um, was a cardiologist. So I think, you know, I think I was volunteering um, with this doctor even before my father was diagnosed with heart disease. And he was his doctor.
4: That's what you did during your summer vacations, yeah, that's right. I yes. did it during
5: the summer vacations and sometimes during you know other time off that I had
4: is there do you remember um a conversation, an experience, or a- advice that you learned from that cardiologist during that time that you kind of take with you um today? Oh,
5: sure. I think um, he, he taught me a lot. I think the earliest thing he said was, when you go on rounds, you always have to look alive and speak with confidence. Look alive. That's, a good, I,
4: that's good advice for a Look alive and, doctor. And speak
5: with confidence. It was just right. really funny when he said that to me. He <laughs> said, you know, pay attention because they're going to call on you. Um, and, and they did. And it was at a time where teaching was a bit different than the medical teaching now. Um, and, it, and, you know, they were pretty aggressive and they made you feel bad.
4: Wow. What, what was the, do you know, what was the percentage of, of Uh, men to women in your class?
5: Well, um, originally in my medical school class, there were, I think, 220 uh,
4: students and there were 12 women. Wow. And can you recall instances where you felt there was any kind of um, discrimination uh, towards you and the other female students at that time? Well, in the first two years of
5: medical school, which were largely classroom training, it was just, um, you know, taking classes in a big lecture hall and taking the exams and studying. And no, I'm not. You know, I never felt that the teachers discriminated against me, but I would say that the One of the first days in medical school, I sat next to another student in my class who looked at me and said, "Um, you know, because you were allowed into this class, a friend of mine had to go to school in Mexico.
4: Oh, gosh.
5: Wow! And I said, "Excuse me," because I went to Barnard College undergraduate, and I think at Barnard you get a lot of confidence at a woman, as a woman. Um, right. You that that you know you can do whatever you want to do, and, and you feel very supported. So when you go out and people say these things to you, it's like like, like it's an alien. Right. Um, and so <laughs> I said, "Why?" I, I just I, I you know I said, "Like, are you serious?"
4: I don't understand what you're saying
5: to me. I don't understand what you're saying.
4: I said, I
5: took the same exams you did, and I got in here fair and square.
4: Right, right. If you're just uh, tuning into the show, I'm with Dr. Nisa Goldberg this evening, the medical director of NYU Women's Heart Program. Um, I understand, Nisa, during your residency, um, you heard a doctor say that women don't get heart disease. What? What struck you about that comment? Well, that was actually during my cardiology fellowship.
5: And it was um, as I was finishing my fellowship, I was um, doing a stress test on a woman who actually worked at the hospital where I was doing my cardiology fellowship. And she was admitted to the coronary care unit. And she told the story about she'd been to like four doctors and um, telling them that she had tightness in her her throat, shortness of breath. And they said, oh, you're stressed out, you know, take a vacation. And one doctor gave her a prescription for Valium. And then um, someone admitted her to the hospital. We did a stress test. It was abnormal and recommended further testing. And the doctor said, oh, no, she doesn't need further testing because women don't have heart disease. Wow. And what
6: what
5: and year was it, that? What what do you that was like 90, That was like um,
4: 1990. Okay. Okay. Wow. Um, we're going to go into our first break. Uh, Nisa, stay with us. Stay with us for our watch team. You're listening to Women Watch. Women to Watch. Excuse me. We'll be right back.
1: Now the Women to Watch Health Watch.
7: For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. November, Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. The pancreas helps in digestion as it makes enzymes that break down fats, proteins, and carbs in your diet. It also makes insulin and other hormones that keep your glucose levels balanced. The pancreas is only six inches in size and it's shaped like a fish. So the head or larger end points to the right side of the abdomen and tapers into a tail. It's deep in the abdomen near your back. That's why cancer in the pancreas can start as back pain and if a tumor presses on your stomach or intestine, it can lead to loss of appetite and gradual weight loss. Pressure on a bile duct can cause jaundice, which is yellow skin and eyes, tea-colored urine, and whitish stools. When celebrities like Alex Trebek and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are in the news, it may seem like numbers are rising. Well, it has passed other common cancers for causing death, but this is probably because there's a decrease in deaths from colon and breast cancer due to screening and improved therapies. About 10% of cases are due to a genetic mutation inherited from your parents. But there are also people with a strong family history with no identifiable mutation. But like other cancers, most cases are not inherited. Risk increases with age due to natural breakdown of our DNA or from toxins in the environment. What can we control? Well, smoking causes up to 25% of cases quit for two years and your risk drops in half obesity, especially a BMI over 30. Obesity can also lower your chances and your time for survival. And diabetes for more than five years may also increase risk. Improving your glucose control may be helpful. And if you need surgery, studies show your chances for fewer complications and a longer survival result when the surgery is performed at a center that does a high number of these cases. This morning on Your Radio Doctor, I spoke to two doctors who have a vast experience in treating pancreatic cancer. The podcast is on YourRadioDoctor.net.
1: Now, the women to watch. Legal Watch.
8: This is Nicole Hittner at Ballard Spar Law Firm for Legal Watch. There's so much uncertainty in our nation right now, but one thing we know holds constant. Women supporting women for a greater world. Ballard is committed to providing legal assistance to people even when they can't afford it. Our commitment to pro bono work is unparalleled. I'm excited to tell you about one of our current pro bono clients, Momcology. Momcology is a nonprofit organization created by moms for families impacted by childhood cancer. It's a community building support organization helping parents identify care gaps and create solutions to meet those needs. They believe the way to repurpose trauma from your own pain is to help others through theirs. Through Ballard's pro bono programming, we've really been able to support momcology. We assist with their corporate governance issues, trademarks, employment matters, and response to COVID-19. As I've mentioned before, the rules and regulations in that area are constantly changing and very tricky to navigate on your own. At a time when our nation often feels divided, I really believe this kind of support can bring us all together. Focus on the positive change that you can make. Let us help you. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard's Bar for your legal watch.
1: This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT.
4: I'm joined by Dr. Nisa Goldberg this evening. And Dr. Goldberg is the medical director of NYU Women's Heart Program. Um, she has many other titles and roles, and we'll be talking about all of them um, as we go through the show. I wanted to ask you, Nisa, um I read, before I even um, had met you and, you know, was digging into your work and and researching, it surprised me to learn that the number one killer of women is heart disease. And I don't think that many people know that. Well, you're right, not many people um, realize that because
5: over the last 10 years, Women's awareness that heart disease is a leading health threat has actually gone down in our country. There was a recent study that showed there was about a 20% reduction in the women being aware that heart heart disease is their leading killer. And um, it's disappointing since um, when I published my first book, Women Are Not Small Men, um, originally in 2002, um, and then you know and then a couple of years later the american heart association started the go red for women we i worked with the american heart association to start the go red for women campaign and the national heart and blood blood institute had the heart truth campaign and then we started to see women's awareness increase but recently um, it's pretty disappointing to show that women are just not
4: aware you know, I think we often um, our perspective is is built or forms around our own personal inexper- experience. And I would say, for me personally, I I don't know any women that have died from heart disease. All the women I know personally, um, it's it's been cancer. So, is there a certain demographic that it's higher in than others?
5: Well, sure. There are a lot of things that put you at increased risk. Certainly, if you have a family history where your mom had her first symptoms of heart disease when she was 60 or younger, or your dad was 50 or younger, or you have high cholesterol or diabetes, um, high blood pressure, um, don't exercise, and eat a pretty unhealthy diet. So all of these things can actually increase your risk for having heart disease or heart attack. And um, then we have learned that other women who should be taught by their, you know, referred by their doctors for additional assessment for their risk are women particularly who have had autoimmune disease like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, um, or have had conditions during pregnancy like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, that's diabetes of pregnancy, high blood pressure during pregnancy, um, preterm birth, because some of those conditions put you at increased risk for high blood pressure, diabetes, and heart disease in later life. So I also think women um, often are uh, encouraged to seek out medical care by their best girlfriends and since women often don't talk about heart disease, then that connection is not getting through. And I also think that we have, these days, we our traditional means of raising awareness um, and, and through national campaigns help some women. But the recent study that, that I mentioned earlier actually showed that those messages are mo- mainly reaching women 65 and up. And, you know, we need to talk to women who are younger so they get started
4: on heart disease prevention. You know, you mentioned the Go Red for Women campaign, and you were behind that. Um, what impact have you seen from that campaign? I mean, we we all recognize that and are aware of it. Have you do you know of statistics that, you know, it's actually had some impact as far as women coming in and asking and, and wanting to be checked and, and get their physicals? Well, you know,
5: we, you know yearly, the American Heart Association does studies on, on um, and they did early on studies and found out that we did increase the awareness of women on their risk factors for heart, for heart disease through the Go Red for Women campaign um but i I think right now um women 's risk actually increases um after of actually having a heart attack seems to increase after menopause, although menopause is not a risk factor for having heart attack um and I think now we have a new generation of women who are reaching the perimenopausal and the menopausal years, and we really need to reach out to them to make sure that not only they get their bone density testing and see their gynecologist and get their regular mammograms, but we also get an evaluation for their cardiac risk factors. And you don't always have to go to a cardiologist. These should be done by your primary care doctor. They can get blood testing for cholesterol and and blood sugar.
4: You know, Nisa. One of my listeners saw you were coming on the show and was curious. You know, she's in the heat of menopause. I'll say the heat of menopause, and um, it's experiencing some like occasional heart palpitations. Is is yes. So what is that? uh,
5: That's very common. That's very common. That part of the menopausal symptoms of hot flashes. and um is associated um also with having palpitations or very commonly some of my patients who are a perimenopausal report to me that they have palpitations or a racing heartbeat awakening them at night
4: wow and and i again that's that's one of those anecdotes that i wasn't aware of um so it's good to know because that kind of occurrence is, is going to, to be know. scary yeah
5: That's right. And if you don't, if you didn't know that, if you're having, you know, rapid, irregular and fluttering heartbeats and they're recurring and they're and it, you know, you should get them checked out. Right. And the way we do that is the doctor starts off by doing uh, an electrocardiogram. And sometimes we give people a heart monitor to wear overnight or for a few days.
4: And that's an easy that's an that's an easy um, fix. Um, it's an easy I, fix. It's right. non-invasive. It doesn't hurt. Right. You know, something we talk often on the show about is stress. And, you know, with everything that's going on in the world today, how much would you say stress plays a factor on the heart for both men and women? Well,
5: we're, we're just, believe it or not, learning about the connection of stress and the heart. And um, we, we know that stress is associated with increasing a person's blood pressure, um, and it also increases cortisol levels, which can lead to high blood pressure and higher levels of glucose and weight gain. So it's... It, 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 Even though people think of it as a mental issue or emotional issue, it does have physical complications.
4: You know, when I look at um, your own life, Nisa, between media appearances and writing and teaching and researching and working, you know, you're incredibly busy. Tell me how you manage your own stress level.
5: Well, um, we, all, we I, I am a very busy person, but I really um, try to be very organized when I start the day and and structured. So when I'm at work, things are very structured. I have an amazing team around me um, uh, to make sure that things are moving smoothly. Um, I I'm, I'm really grateful that um, Colleen Landry who's a nurse practitioner working with me who's been a friend for over 20 years and um, she w- was working with me as a nurse and then she went to the NYU nurse practitioner program and she and and she I said we have a job and she took the job and so and the patients are very excited to see her because they know her a long time so it's one thing that you when you're in a job situation, it's really important to look around, not only about what your job description is, but what the support for the job is. And, and so that's an important thing. The other thing that I always prioritize is that I exercise. So like many people during the pandemic, I had to change my exercise routine a bit because I used to go to the gym. And now I don't do that. So um, as a gift, my husband purchased, um, uh, bought me a Peloton bicycle. And so um, I'm really excited that I'm able to to use the Peloton uh, bicycle um, practically every day and do also some other exercises on their app, like their ballet bar exercise and their strength training exercises. So I think that... Exercise is a very important um, component or a very important part of the way I reduce stress. Do you I also f- want to point out that my husband yeah. is very supportive of all the things I do. <laughs>
4: <laughs> As he should be. You're As saving the be, world. But, yes. but he certainly,
5: does, certainly doesn't add to the stress. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's a nice shout out for him. Do you let me ask you, do you feel and I ask this question a lot because I think everyone is different. Do you feel joy from the busy and the active life you live? Or do you feel obligated to bring awareness um, to your patients? Or is it a combination of both?
5: I, I think I feel a great sense of joy being with my patients and working through their medical issues with them as a team member. Um, and, and I also I feel a passion for what I do. And, you know, a hard day is not because a patient is difficult or anything else. A hard day is work is when the system breaks down. So I, I'm really happy to say that I love my work. And, w- and one of the things I've talked about recently is the fact that, you know, it's been challenging for many people during the pandemic. And I feel really grateful that I come to work and that's my activity. And, you know, I pretty much have my regular schedule. So for the time at work, I pretty much can focus on my my practice.
4: Yeah, that's really the ideal, isn't it? That that not only are you joyful in the work that you're doing, um, but it's so incredibly important, and you're you're helping other people at the same time. Um, yeah, it's ver- it, it's a very fulfilling, um,
5: you know, um, profession to be a doctor, right? Especially a
4: cardiologist, right. We're going to go into our next break. Um, Stay with us. I'm speaking to Dr. Nisa Goldberg this evening, Medical Director of NYU Women's Heart Program. Stay tuned for our watch team.
1: Now the women to watch. Finance Watch.
9: Hi, this is Terry, and I'm from Fortis Wealth. November is National Long-Term Care Awareness Month. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, over 70% of men and women in the U.S. over the age of 65 will need some type of long-term care services, even if only for a short time. Not only can care be expensive, it can also take a toll on the whole family as they work through the financial implications, the roles of family members, and other logistics of making important decisions for a loved one. Here are some statistics surrounding long-term care in the United States. 78% of adults who are getting care at home rely solely on family and friends for their assistance. The average caregiver is a 46-year-old woman. Caregivers spend an average of 21 hours per week assisting their patient or family member. Over 90% of family caregivers have had to alter their work schedule permanently to care for their loved one, some switching to part-time from full-time work. Many have had to take a pay cut and or skip vacations and other personal activities. 29% had to use their own money to provide care. And more than 10% had to move to be closer to their family member in need of care. According to the Alzheimer's Association, more than 5 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease. And by the year 2050, this number could rise as high as 16 million. We urge you to help raise awareness about long-term care and acknowledge anyone you know who is or who has been a caregiver. The more we understand the emotional, physical, and economic toll that long-term care can take on loved ones, the more we can prepare for our own future and family needs. Another way to honor Long-Term Care Awareness Month is by planning for your own long-term care. Talk to your family about what you want to happen and assess what financial and community resources you will have available. Consider long-term care insurance if you're currently in good health, which can help to protect assets and reduce out-of-pocket costs making your wishes known and having a plan in place can minimize the stress of a long-term care situation for all concerned. This is Terry. Peace out.
2: If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting.
1: Now the women to watch. Nonprofit
10: watch. Good evening, Women To Watch listeners. I'm Dr. Nakia Owens, Managing Director of Financial Empowerment at the United Way of Greater Philadelphia and Southern New Jersey. As many of you are well aware, the unexpected can happen to any of us. And we know this more closely due to the COVID pandemic and how over 150 million Americans were faced with filing for unemployment and now over 8 million are faced with living in poverty. A disruption in income has the propensity to cause the greatest impact and disruption in a person's life, especially when caring for children. As a result of generous donors, United Way invests in a family empowerment initiative designed to support families throughout the Philadelphia region who find themse- themselves at risk of becoming homeless or might be homeless already. This initiative supports the whole family so parents are able to find or acquire greater employment, and the children can remain in the same school in supporting their academic success. This initiative is not based solely on income, but looks at the entire family situation and what is needed to support the family in maintaining housing stability. There are case managers willing and ready to support the family with their goals, but not dictate those goals. If you know a family in the Philadelphia area who has been adversely impacted or is at risk of homelessness due to a job loss, please have them reach out to United Ways Helpline by calling 211 or they can reach out to United Ways partner directly, Yousef at www.uesfacts.org. And until next time, I'm Dr. Owens, your nonprofit watch.
1: Now, more of Women To Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT.
4: Hi, Sue Rocco here with an update from one of our past guests. I'm with Abby Newman, the CEO of Mission Kids, who was on the show back in March of 2019. So Abby, tell us what you've been up to. Hi, Sue. Thanks so much
6: for having me back. Since we spoke in March of 2019, I've been busy. Most recently, as a result of school closures due to COVID, many kids have been isolated from their teachers, who are often the first to notice and report potential child abuse. As stay-at-home orders and school closures increased, reports of child abuse actually decreased. Unfortunately, child abuse incidents were not lower, just hidden as kids didn't have the eyes of teachers and others at school to help them. Mission Kids, using the guidance of public health, led child advocacy centers in Pennsylvania in the use of PPE, and other safety measures to keep our families, staff and team members safe, while we continue to provide services. And our team has beautifully risen to the challenge to provide these essential responses to kids during COVID. We now also provide child abuse prevention education to teachers in their virtual classrooms by making the ROAR body safety program for children ages four to eight available in both live virtual or recorded on-demand formats. These additional programs will help keep kids safer while at home. In spring 2019, I attended the Tribeca Film Festival for a screening of the documentary film Rewind, directed by Sasha Neulinger. Sasha's child abuse story is central to the founding of Mission Kids and is available to stream on Amazon Prime, and I highly recommend it. We are so proud to be part of this film, which highlights how our community came together to turn tragedy into triumph for all child abuse victims in Montgomery County by the creation of Mission Kids. Rewind has brought Mission Kids recognition from around the country for our excellent approach to serving victims of child abuse and request to share what we have learned. The film is now garnering international attention, and we look forward to working with Sasha to bring his story and the development of the Mission Kids' response to communities where it is needed around the world. We are now partnering with researchers at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Israel, comparing our different cultural responses to child abuse. Our first joint international research article was published in late 2019, and our second project being published this month compares the responses of our child advocacy centers during COVID. We also have two additional projects underway with them, which will continue to improve our responses to abuse. Sue, you introduced me to Ashaba Farida from the Bambino Life Foundation in Uganda, and Mission Kids has partnered with them to create webinars to help Ugandans better understand and respond to reports of child abuse and children living in situations of domestic violence. I'm excited to lead these important international efforts. The world is an ever smaller place, and child abuse is another pandemic. We need to help other communities in the United States and around the world better respond to child abuse, so our response here will be as strong as possible. Please visit our website at www.missionkidscac.org to see all of our programs. As a 501c3 nonprofit, we would be grateful if you considered supporting us so we can continue our work of bringing healing and justice to victims of abuse. Sue, thank you so much for having me on.
4: Abby, thank you so much for your uh, exciting work and really important work um, at this time. Thanks for checking in, and I wish you continued success and hope you'll stay in touch. Thank you.
2: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre recorded.
1: This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill
10: every last one of your dreams.
1: Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world.
10: It is for those frightened
4: children who want peace, it is for those voiceless children. Want change.
1: Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what
10: you have been given.
1: Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Welcome
4: back and good evening. Uh, We're Heading into the second hour of the show and this evening I'm joined by Dr. Nisa Goldberg. Nisa is the Medical Director of NYU Women's Heart Program. She is Senior Advisor for Women's Health Strategy for NYU Langone Health, the Founder and Former Medical Director of the Joan H. Tisch Center for Women's Health and Clinical Associate Professor at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And I just feel so fortunate to have you with us um, this evening um, in, in light of so much that's going on. And, and what I wanted to start the second hour with is just kind of talking with you about, not to get into politics, but I was anxious to get your um, feedback and perspective on where the healthcare system is going, where you see um, change that needs to happen. What would be at the top of your list if I was to say, what kind of things do we need to change as a country in general in the healthcare care system um, that you think is the right thing to do?
5: Well, I think um, our, our concern, um, certainly the important concern is access to care. Um, and as you can see, um, there have been challenges. The Affordable Care Act did allow more people to become insured at reasonable prices so that they can get access to the health care system. And with some of the changes that have occurred over the last few years, health insurance prices have been going on, and there are concerns on many people about whether or not pre-existing conditions would be covered. And I guess just from somebody who watches what goes on, somebody can consider having COVID-19 a pre-existing condition. And you know, having high blood pressure is a pre existing condition, but it needs follow up care. So I think that's gonna be sorted out and I, I also think that um we we really need to um have a fair system so people can understand um, even, and, 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 and easy to understand symptoms so people can understand the kinds of sh- insurance they're buying. Because, you know, people are buying some high deductible insurance plans mm-hmm. and they don't realize, and, and although it might fit their, in, their budget, they don't realize that that doesn't entitle them to routine medical visits. So I really think people need to, un- that it has to be easier for people to understand. I do think that um, we are always um, doing exciting things in cardiology in terms of um, the procedures that we do, particularly the procedures that we have now for arrhythmia. Um, And the ablation procedures where people who have atrial fibrillation and are highly symptomatic, if they're a good candidate, we can do something called radiofrequency ablation where we can eliminate, we could use heat energy to take care of the area where the arrhythmia is coming from and the patients have improvement in their symptoms. And we also have medicines that we can use um, that are highly effective for treating blood pressure and cholesterol. It's just that we need to get people in the door so they get evaluated and see if they need treatment, or the doctor just needs to counsel them on how they can change
4: things in their life to make an impact on their health. You know, there's so much information out there, uh, Nisa, on a, you know on a regular basis, and it's often contradictory. Um even a, right? Even among doctors. So, if, if there's a woman well, listening, I mean,
5: yeah, I have a yeah, I have a strong opinion about that because I think everybody wants their work to be seen, and I think a lot of times um, when things are put online for public view before it's reviewed by the experts to validate some of the calculations that are made in the research study, everyone picks up on, on the, the research and starts taking it as fact. And a lot of times when we publish research studies, particularly for cardiology meetings, we call them abstracts. Those are really work in progress. They're not usually meant to change practice. Once they're published in the medical journal and peer-reviewed, that's when those things should influence medical practice.
4: Tell me, um, Nisa, how has the pandemic affected your life, your day-to-day? Well,
5: um, I think um, in the day-to-day, obviously everyone's wearing masks and I also wear a visor and gloves when I see patients. Um, uh, you know, we I get up every morning and take my temperature and put my temperature in an app, um, you know, fill, go into an app so that People know I don't have any COVID symptoms or fever and can come to work. And then we show the barcode in the morning uh, um, when we walk in. So I think um, those are different. But I also think that that we're learning a lot about how important masks are. Because one of the things I pointed out to my husband is that usually during the year I get sinus infections, but now when you wear a mask, it not only helps you prevent COVID and prevents you giving infection to others, I, it really is helpful in preventing some of those other sniffles.
4: Are you? Can you talk to me about your your level of? Fear, You know, just the fact that you're, you know, many people are just staying home, working from home and only heading out for, you know, supermarket runs. And so, you know, I'd like to know what just your your level of fear is going into hospitals and and being so close. I think I think last March
5: we were all scared. Mm-hmm. But in fact, um, I I do come into the medical center, but I'm, I'm in an outpatient office setting. And my NYU Langone had a very good plan for the pandemic and understood that patients would need to be separated. And they were also very transparent by sending emails every day about what was going on at the medical center. And we always, you know, we always felt that we had enough PPE for us to have in the office to see patients. And also they change the way people, as soon as a person comes in, they go into an exam room. People don't really sit in a waiting room anymore. Right. So actually, um, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think I want, it's a good thing never to have your patient sit in a waiting room and if we can get them into the uh, get them into the um rooms efficiently, they're happier, you're happier, and it it just works well. Yes,
4: yeah, so you see that actually as a possibility for the I, future? I, yeah, for the future. I see it as a possibility for the future.
5: I also see telemedicine as an option. For yeah, instance, I wanted to, when Okay. For no, go for ahead. That was one, one of my questions. Oh, great. For instance, one of um, the ways we screen people for symptoms like a cough or fever or cold is they don't get an office visit. They get a telemedicine visit with a doctor. We have a, a really robust virtual urgent care program here that um, was started ahead of the COVID um a pandemic, but is, it really took off afterwards. So people do get a visit by telemedicine if they're not if they they you know have symptoms of an infection, and then they their their care is based on that visit. I've done some telemedicine visits for stable patients, people who are able to take their blood pressure at home. Um, and You could really do a brief exam uh, by telemedicine just by observing how the person is speaking to you or whether they're coughing while they speak to you or if they're short of breath. And I do get them to move their phone down or their their tablet so I can make sure they have no swelling in the ankles. The only thing you can do on a telemedicine visit right now is actually listen to the person's heart or get an electrocardiogram. But some of my patients who have Apple Watches actually send me a copy of their heart rhythm. Um, They upload it to the medical record system before the visit.
4: Wow, that that's amazing, because the whole time you were speaking, I was thinking, but how, if you cannot listen to the heart, um, uh, they'll probably come up with some kind of an app or something that'll oh, allow yes. you to do Sarah, that? Uh,
5: you know, what's really interesting is they are working on, they do have a remote stethoscope that um, they've been working on, and they mm-hmm. do have... Um, uh, you know, a way to get a remote EKG. So we're working on that.
4: Wow. wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Dr. Nisa Goldberg. Uh, Nisa is a cardiologist and the medical director of NYU Women's Heart Program. Um, you had mentioned, Nisa, um, at the first uh hour of the show, your books, you've written two books, Dr. Nisa Goldberg's right. Complete Guide to Women's Health, and I love the title of the second one, Women Are Not Small Men. <laughs> Tell yeah. me, how did you come up with that title?
5: Oh, I, I came up with the title, and my literary agent really liked it. The publisher kind of was unsure of it at the beginning, um, and I came up with it because of the fact That we were using, you know, when women came in with heart symptoms, we were basically using all the research um, and therapies that were tested on men and not really tested for women. And we we just realized I just realized that women's metabolism is different. We may be smaller, um, smaller bone than some men. And I said, you know what? We're not small men. We're women. And we really need to have our own research that's really focused on us. Did it how long did it take you to write that book? for women are not small men it took yes. about a year a little over a year to write the book and the same for the second book
4: and was that a was that a struggle for you or was it something you enjoyed that was a nice distraction from your Oh, I uh, thought it was a
5: really, I, I, th- um, the first book, it was a really, um, I was really excited to do it and I, I, I mean, the, this information was new and different and I really was, uh, I really wanted to bring it out to the public because the medical community was really not there yet. Right. And um, I, I, I was really driven to do that book, and um, I, I remembered that I liked to sit at the dining room table um, to do my my to write my book. And my husband said, "You know, you're going to wear out the chair. You should <laughs> rotate the chairs in the dining room." And I, I did wear out the chair. I had to have them recovered. <laughs>
4: That's a great story. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, we're going to go into our last break. Stay with us. I'm talking to Dr. Nisa Goldberg. And uh, stay with us for the Watch Team segment. And we'll be back.
1: Now, the Women to Watch. Military Watch.
11: Hi, I'm Carol Egert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. This month is National Veteran and Military Families Month. And this week is particularly special to the military community because this Tuesday, the U.S. Marine Corps celebrates its 245th birthday. And on Wednesday, Veterans Day, the nation honors all those who have served. This week is a whirlwind of activities for us at Comcast's NBCUniversal. From functions recognizing our military community employees, to reaching out to our military customers, or to news and other content commemorating those who have served. The military community sits at the center stage of our company. And do you know why our nation celebrates Veterans Day on November 11th? Well, it traces back not to the beginning of a war as one might expect, but rather to the end of one. At the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month, hostilities ended during World War I. It was originally referred to as Armistice Day starting in 1919, but the United States Congress renamed it to Veterans Day to recognize and honor its nation's military veterans on this special anniversary. It's telling that a moment of peace was selected to honor warriors, a reminder that all warriors yearn for peace, not for war, but are ready when called upon to sacrifice all for the freedom of others. You'll find no other branch of the U.S. military that exudes this warrior spirit more than the U.S. Marine Corps the third oldest branch of the U.S. military, the Marine Corps was established by the Continental Congress on November 10, 1775, in Comcast's hometown of Philadelphia. Originally formed to protect U.S. Navy vessels during the Revolutionary War, today's U.S. Marine Corps is the largest force of its kind in the world, capable of fighting by land, by air, and by sea. U.S. Marines have fought in every major U.S. conflict, earning their nickname from World War I, when German soldiers reported being attacked by Teufelhunden, or Devil Dogs, at the Battle of Belleau Wood. So happy birthday, Marines, Semper Fi. I'll leave you with this one request. This week, take a moment to reach out to a family member, a friend, a neighbor, anyone in your personal sphere that has served and recognize what they've done in service to our country.
1: The Women to Watch, Tech Watch.
3: Hi, I'm Mary Mansell from Pathways Consulting Group. National STEM Day is here, and I thought the timing of the segment was appropriate. I've shared my thoughts over the course of the past couple of years on the lack of women in the technology industry and why it matters and what steps we can take to closing the gap. To recap, although more companies are including women in their technology roadmaps, the percentages of women earning computer science degrees keeps decreasing. Why does this matter? Because clearly the tech industry is the place to be for job seekers now and in the future. And the number of jobs in the industry will only continue to grow. With so much opportunity, getting young girls interested at an early age without forcing it on them is key. To foster a love for something, you need to make it a part of everyday life. To do this, we need to spark a young girl's interest in STEM. So why not provide them with some fun learning activities? Rasmussen College has some awesome ideas on their website, rasmussen.edu. Cloud in a Jar uses everyday household ingredients and can be very simple for little ones or scaled up for older girls. They also have many other activities like Coda Lego Maze or Make a Crystal Sun Catcher. Almost all the activities use everyday household items. MadeWithCode.com is another website. Their philosophy is that increasingly more aspects of our lives are powered by technology, yet women aren't represented in the roles that make technology happen. So they created activities to teach girls about computer coding, like make a new film or design the next fashion trend. With Google at your fingertips, it doesn't take much effort to find ways to foster a girl's interest through activity without forcing technology on them. If you're interested in more great websites and articles,
1: contact me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHC. Team.
4: i'm speaking with dr nisa goldberg this evening and nisa this last segment i want to get to know you a little bit better um, personally one of the things i'm always um hoping is that our listeners take away a little bit more of who my guests are and how they have managed especially as women to rise to such um leadership levels in spite of whatever challenges they face, because, you know, we all have those. So if I were to ask you what, you know, what's one of your greatest personal challenges that you have um, overcome and are proud of, or perhaps still working on?
5: Well, I think one of the things that I had to work on a lot was learning how to network with others and finding out um, a little more on how to understand the political structure of where you are. You know, when you go through medical school, it's really about... um, doing well on your exams, and making sure patients are better, but if you really have to explore um, it, other areas in medicine and leadership positions, um, you really have to learn more about the political infrastructure of where you, in, wherever you are working. And I think it took me a little time to understand that as I was progressing in my career and that's something that now i i work to uh, teach others. And I'll use that as an example. In, in my new, um, role as, um, head of women's health strategy at NYU, I worked with two doctors, um, who are surgeons, um, who are interested in working on a women's lung program. Because lung cancer is one of the leading cancers in women, and it's not, in, in so, and so, and we're learning now that many of those cancers don't have anything to do with cigarette smoking. And um, and in fact, our screening programs are pretty good for cigarette smoking in terms of getting CAT scans, but there are no guidelines for women um, to screen women who may be at risk for these other cancers. So you know they wanted to start this program, and they're both surgeons and they're highly talented in in the surgery, but you know they really needed someone to help. Um, Organize them in terms of how do you start this program? So I went around and I I met with them and I said, you know, you really have to figure out who your stakeholders are in this. You know, certainly it's the lung doctors or the pulmonologists, the people at the cancer center. And I helped them to, to build those networks during that time because I, you know, I think that's very important. You have to learn to get buy-in from any particular stakeholder that you may have, um, that may be involved. Because if you don't do that, you can be really set
4: up for failure. When you look back over your life, what are you most proud of? To this point, because I know you you have a lot to do yet, but
5: I mean, it's it's just so um, I, you you know I still think that I'm most proud of the you know the fact that of my work in actually delivering healthcare. Um, that I I really feel that one of my skills is really indicate, in, um, integrating the current trends in healthcare into the plan of each and every one of my patients. And I think this is very important that a doctor, no matter where you are in your career, that you must stay on top of the
4: information. Would you say you've developed um, close Personal relationships with your patients—is that something you strive to do?
5: Yes, I mean, I really strive to develop close personal relationships with my patients in terms of letting them know that I'm always, I'm always, I'm always there to, to you know answer their questions, and uh, really developed a nice way of communicating um, with my patients through the online um, medical record system and messages. One of the things I really pride, uh, I take pride in is that I, I answer their messages really quickly because it's, it's one thing to tell somebody to send you a message. The other thing is, is you have to keep up your end of the bargain by, by sending it back. But I also one of the other things that I'm really proud of is that I've made so many uh, met so many incredible people in my career and I've had so many different mentors and I get advice from people inside and outside of the healthcare system.
4: That was my next question if if I were to ask you you know to to speak about someone who has really been a mentor in your life and and um, supported you, who, who would that be or who was one of them? Well, certainly, um,
5: you know, Dr. Stein, who was the doctor I volunteered with, Mm-hmm. He was very important in my career and and um, really being supportive in my becoming a cardiologist. And then one of the doctors who works here at NYU, um, Dr. Judith Hockman, was one of my attending doctors when I did my residency at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, and she's an um, she's an attending physician here and in the cardiology division. And um, she's so has been a mentor not only to me but to so many other women cardiologists.
4: If, if you were not a practicing cardiologist, is there something, when you think about yourself as a young girl, what would be the second profession? What would you be doing if, you're, if you were not a doctor?
5: Well, one of the things I was considering when I was um, growing up is to be a writer. So I'm, I'm glad I got to write, you know, that I've written two books. Yeah. And I write articles and um, and to be a doctor. But that's something I might may, you
4: know, uh, would like to have pursued more of. So you've completed both goals then. <laughs> and that's I really so yeah, an author and a, and a doctor. That's amazing. Um, something else the listeners might not know about you is that you host um, your own show. Beyond the Heart with Sirius. Is that something you're still doing? It's on, on, yeah it's it's on hiatus um
5: right now um because of covid but it'll be coming up um, uh live soon um we We are um re rebroadcasting some shows, and there are some live shows with other doctors on Sirius x m one ten doctor radio and that's something. That um, NYU and SiriusXM do together, and it's it's um, health programming.
4: And tell me about the show. Do you is it um, you bringing news and information, or do you have guests on as well? I I
5: bring news and information. I bring guests on, and we have a segment called Ask Doctor Nisa, and people get to call in and ask their questions about heart disease, heart disease risk factors, um, confusing medical information, and one of the things that we like to do, um, I sometimes have my producer, Lori Parker, in on the show, is we help people organize themselves before their medical visits. Oh, there you go. That's important.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Not I forgetting mean, really all the funny.
5: paper. I had, yeah, I've had a caller call in on the way to the doctor to ask how they should t- explain their condition to them.
4: <laughs> well, then you're, you're a doctor on call. I love that. That's if you, right. If, 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 bet, you know, if people were able to tap into you and ask you questions all day long, I'm not sure how much work you would get done. That's right. Nisa, I have a quote here. Um, you said, it shocked me that coronary and cardiovascular issues in women were so poorly understood, especially when risk factors in women Often could be easily treated. What are some of those those you know treatments um, that you describe as? Well, go ahead. Well, well, you know, for the
5: risk doctors like high blood pressure, we have hundreds of medicines that we can use to treat high blood pressure, as well as an effective diet called the DASH diet. Um, which lowers salt and uses fruits, vegetables, whole grains. It's low in meats and sweets um, to help lower blood pressure. Um, We have effective cholesterol medicines. We just need to make the diagnosis. Does a person need cholesterol medicine or not? What about um, encouraging somebody to go into a diet and exercise program to lose weight? Obesity is a risk factor for heart disease and increases risk for having high blood pressure and diabetes. So to work on that and, you know, and, and having people find people to find mechanisms that work for them to lower stress.
4: You know, I think so many of us, um, we truly know what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be exercising. We're supposed to be eating the right things. And it's always just a matter of discipline. Am I going to do it? It's, it's discipline Discipline and finding out, you know, sometimes I work with my patients
5: to understand what is holding them back.
4: Yes. Right. Getting to the root of that. What do you Is there a commonality in that answer? Um, you
5: know, they don't know how to get started, often they say. So I talk to them about using small steps. In fact, it's probably easier to get someone to walk and use their phone or their watch to, to, to count the 10,000 steps a day. Um, and then from doing an exercise program, oftentimes people adopt other healthier lifestyles. The hardest thing to get people to do is quit smoking.
4: I would imagine there's a lot less smokers today than when we were growing up. I hope. There are. I certainly are fewer don't see smokers, it in but the. But I see. Young sorry, people are
5: smoking more. Young people are smoking more. Are they really? Sm- wow. Yes, and 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 you know, the sooner the earlier you start smoking, the more likely it's going to be difficult for you to quit.
4: Wow. Um, because I have two millennial children and, um, you know, when I look at their groups, their peer groups, none of them were smoking, but, um, yeah, it is good. And, and I think also it's, I think that if, if you're content in life and happy, I think you tend to take better care of yourself than if you're struggling emotionally with something.
5: That is true. So we have to work on why people are struggling in order to get them to the next stage.
4: That's right. We are at the end of the show. Um, Nisa, I'm so grateful um, and honored to have you on the show this evening. You shared so much great information, and I hope you'll um, continue to enjoy your work.
0: Thank you, and it's great to be with you, Sue.
1: Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch.
0: Hi everyone, I'm Lynn Falconio, Chief Marketing Officer of Publicis Health for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. In addition to the COVID-19 pandemic, this year has highlighted structural inequities, social disparities, and brought about a much needed racial reckoning in America. All of us have a role to play in fighting systemic racism. For those of us in advertising and marketing, it means putting our money where our mouth is. The United States is the largest ad market in the world, where marketers spend nearly $250 billion annually to deliver content that influences decision-making and shapes culture. Some of the most visible and impactful culture makers are social media influencers, supported by nearly $15 billion in media spend for many of the world's largest companies. This content is being consumed at an astonishing clip. According to Nielsen, The average U.S. adult spends more than 11 hours a day listening to, watching, reading, or generally interacting with media. We spend nearly half our lives consuming content that shapes our view of reality. As marketers tasked with making that content and distributing it in media, we must understand the responsibility we have to ensure those messages are diverse and inclusive. Inclusive marketing means the people represented in the marketing messages as well as the channels they're distributed in, reflect the diversity of the world we live in. Beyond being the right thing to do, inclusive marketing drives growth. 43% of the 75 million millennials in the U.S. identify as African American, Hispanic, or Asian, which means if a brand doesn't have a multicultural strategy, it doesn't have a growth strategy either. 2020 has demonstrated we have a long way to go when it comes to inclusion. But when we recognize that diversity and and inclusion is everyone's responsibility, like everything in life, we can go farther when we go together. Until next time, I'm Lynn Falconio for Marketing Watch.
4: Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women To Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T.
1: Now, Women on the Fly.
4: I'm speaking with Dr. Nisa Goldberg. Nisa, tell me how you start your day. I
5: get up and put breakfast on the table.
4: What is your mantra for stressful moments? It isn't that bad, just (laughs) sit down and relax. (laughs) Are you a planner or a in-the-moment worker? I'm a planner. Where are you typically when inspiration strikes? Anywhere. A place you've traveled that you wanna go back to? Italy. How do you unwind? I exercise. What is your definition of feminism? Confidence. What are three words that describe you? Reliable, happy,
5: and healthy. What's
4: your favorite color? Pink. Favorite book? Mmm,
5: there's so many. Perhaps your own. (laughs) It's get it's getting boring after all these years. No, it's no, it's not. (laughs) My, yeah, actually, of the two books, "Women Are Not Small Men" is my favorite.
4: There you go. Last question: How do you end your day? I end my day by exercising. That's great. Thanks, Nisa. Thank you. Bye. Coming up next is our Coach's Corner podcast, which is a shorter version of our weekly show and can be heard wherever you get your favorite podcast.
12: I'm BJ Gray with this week's Coach's Corner. I want to talk to you about this concept of being an entrepreneur inside the business you work for. We all know entrepreneurs are owners of startups, and they have a mentality that is very different from employees working for a company And way different from employees working for a large company. And I think today, with businesses needing to think outside the box to stay competitive, to survive, or to stay relevant, they need to empower their employees to be the entrepreneurs within the bounds of the company. And there's a word for this. It's called intrapreneurship. Intrapreneurship is having individual employees who are motivated and proactive in the pursuit of innovation. And they know that they can fail because it doesn't affect them personally, because the company takes the hit for the loss. Leadership will encourage managers to empower their employees to take ownership of their responsibilities and give them the freedom and support to succeed. And in turn, this creates a healthy culture because the employees are allowed to get out of their swim lane to fix problems when they see other teams struggling. And it's less about staying in their own box and seeing problems happening elsewhere and more about rewarding proactive behavior that supports the business as a whole. For many employees who embrace this way of behaving, it reduces the constant stress they have about knowing things aren't working well. They now have more freedom and skin in the game to make it work. I'm always asked by C-suite executives, how can I create a more healthy culture? And I always say it's about building more trust. It's about building better connections through safe dialogue. And it's about allowing employees to have more freedom in their roles. Some will be entrepreneurs that create, Some will be entrepreneurs that take the idea and run with it. And some will be entrepreneurs that implement the ideas. All are needed for achieving new and better results. Thanks for listening to this edition of Coach's Corner. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn or at BJGray.com. Until next time, I'm BJ from Coach's Corner.
4: That is it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors for their continued support. And thank you for joining us this evening. Have a great week, everyone.
2: Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this?